0: Friends, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 14. And as I was preparing this week for this sermon, it occurred to me that we have spent the entire month of September in this one chapter. We've spent four Sundays on one chapter in 1 Samuel. And if we wanted to, we could spend another entire month in this chapter because we're leaving a lot of stones left unturned. We're not going to be able to cover that, everything that's here And it reminds me of Jesus' words when he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. We will have the scripture with us for all eternity, and we will mine its depths there. With that in mind, let me read from 1 Samuel 14, and I'm going to start in verse 47. Hear now God's word. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side. Against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these the name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michael and the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Let's pray together. Father, you say that Your word will not return to you void. And so we ask that you would do that very thing in our midst. We long for it to go forth to plant itself into our hearts and to change us and to make us look like your son, Jesus. Would you do that? We pray in his name, amen. You know, the division between 1st and 2nd Samuel is a man-made one. We divided this book that was originally written as one whole story into two parts, and then we divided the books of Samuel into chapters for us to reference and to be able to access. For our purposes, we're going to study just the first half. We're going to study 1 Samuel together. And we could think about the book of 1 Samuel as a play that comes to us in three acts. This helps us understand the book of 1 Samuel. It helps us to divide it into neat chapter headings where we can sense what's going on and what the flow of movement is. The first act in 1 Samuel is the act entitled Samuel himself. It's chapters one through seven. And in those chapters, we get the rise and the prominence of Samuel as the man who God uses to move his kingdom forward. Well, at the end of this act, before the curtain closes on Samuel, we get this summary about his life. It happens at the very end of chapter seven, and it clearly markates where we're going to move on. Chapter seven, verse 15 says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, and so on. The summary shows us that Samuel has done his ministry. He's still going to be with us throughout the book, but he is no longer going to be the prominent character. And when we open chapter 8 and move in the second act from chapters 8 to now 14, the new act is entitled Saul. Saul is the one that God raises up. Saul is the one who takes prominence in these chapters as the one God is using. And when we get to the end of chapter 14, as I just read, we have another summary which helps mark this is the end of this act. Act 2, the curtain is closing on Saul, and Act 3 is going to open and introduce us to a new person, a man after God's own heart, who we will follow in Act 3, King David. But true to what happened to Samuel, this uh, summary statement is given to us. This is what we just read. This is a way to wind down Saul's ministry, even though he's still going to be with us, even though he's going to be alive through the end of the book. Saul is moved from center stage to become a foil character for David. The things he does shows us what David is not like. David is a man after God's own heart, and that's the new role that Saul will take. Well, we read this summary statement, and it's a little bit surprising to us, because it's a very glowing review of Saul and his life. We've spent several chapters with him since chapter 8. We've been talking a lot about Saul, and we've said some very unkind things about him, because the Bible has. The Bible has shown us ways in which Saul has turned in on himself, and his world has become about himself. And now we read this summary statement, and it says, These are some remarkable things about Saul. Saul, He was a very strong king. He had a strong family. He fought valiantly and he delivered Israel from the hands of those who sought to plunder them. It reminds me telling the story of Saul of Wendell Berry and his remarkable novel, novel, Jaber Crow, where the character Jaber says, telling a story is like reaching into a granary full of wheat and pulling out a handful There's always more to the story to tell than can be told. That's true about Saul. You look at this man and he is a very complex character. There's more to tell about Saul than can be told. And we watch him wrestle in his relationship with God. He's a coward at one turn and he's courageous at the next. He's a person in last week in this previous passage that pushes people away from himself. And now in this this section, he's a person who draws people near to himself. He takes such earnest stabs at religiosity and reigning that you just wanna come alongside the guy and shake him and and call him to attention. He's a, a complex person who wrestles in his relationship with God. But for here, for all the blunders that Saul made, for all his missteps, we get this glowing report and we hear in verse 48 that Saul did valiantly and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now, I want to make an application from this passage and this section, but before we do that, I think it's important to point out what can be for us an interpretive mistake. Sometimes when we come to our Old Testaments and we read about, especially Old Testament Israel and their quest for a nation and what God was doing in them, we can begin to think to ourselves that we have very different aims. That Israel in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and the church in the New Testament, the new Israel, we were after two different things, right? Because Israel looks like they're after a political nation, this actual physical territory of Israel, and we as the church, we're after a spiritual kingdom. I mean, when we read about Israel in 1 Samuel, we get neck deep in this issue of the border and of politics and these battles, and we get to the New Testament, it's about spirituality and sacraments. When we read 1 Samuel, these men actually take up swords and spears. And when we get to the New Testament, Paul reminds us that our weapons are not flesh and blood. We fight powers and principalities. So we begin to think to ourselves, we have two different aims, and that could not be further than the truth. It is true that we today, the new Israel in the New Testament and Israel in Saul's day are in very different contexts, but we are after the exact same thing. We have the same aim, the same desire, the same goal. Being a follower of God has only ever been about a changed heart that changes our lives. That's what we're about. We're about God forgiving us and cleansing us and changing us so that we will be different and live different in response to him. You can't say that Saul's pursuit in Israel was only for a political kingdom because when Israel fights for her borders of her territory, it's also a fight for the borders of her hearts. If the Philistines overran Israel, if they took over, if they occupied militarily, they would also do so spiritually. Those things are one and the same in Israel's day. If Philistines were the new rulers in the territory of Israel in Saul's day, then the Ark of the Covenant would no longer be set up. It would be Dagon who dwells in Shiloh and in Gibeah and wherever they worshiped the one true God. As we're going to read in chapter 15, it is possible to gain the socio-political kingdom and yet lose your heart in the process. And God has only ever been about the latter. He's been about drawing people to himself. At the same time, you can't say that us as the new Israel, the new people of God in the New Testament are only about the spiritual and not the physical. It's true that our war is against powers and principalities, but that has very physical flesh and blood implications for us. On Sunday morning, we fight to gather together as God's people. We wrestle these restless hands to fold into prayer to God. We as a people, we take a physical stand for actual physical mercy and justice in this city. We work hard in our jobs and we do so with honor and we do so with delight that we can glorify God, that we can earn money and have something to generously share with those people who don't have. We open up our homes in a very physical way and we invite people to our dinner tables who cannot invite us back. In other words, we see this spiritual change in our hearts, but it immediately teases itself out into a physical world. Don't you dare come to my house And to watch my wife scramble to vacuum and to cook a pot of chili for guests that are coming over and tell her, isn't it so great that the kingdom is all spiritual and not physical? That that Gnostic heresy is not going to fly in my house. What's going to fly is the spoon that she's using to make the chili. This is a flesh and blood reality. We dwell in these things. And the reason I say all that is because when we read such a foreign context of Saul battling Philistines on the border of a territory in the Middle East, we realize that the application is closer than we once thought. Because us, the new Israel, and Saul, the Israel of the Old Testament, are after one and the same thing. We have the same goal, we have the same desire to glorify God in all we do. We tell the same story that we have been liberated by an exodus that has brought us out of the land of slavery, out of sin and death to follow God and live a response of worship and thanksgiving to him. We're doing one and the same thing. With that in mind, I want to return to our text and I wanna just draw one application. There's several things that the, the writer of 1 Samuel says that Saul does well. It says that he fought valiantly against his enemy, and then we get a list of these enemies. East of the Jordan, north to south, you have Zobah, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and then of course west of Israel on the coastal plains, you have the Philistines. Some of those stories we heard about and we read about, and some of those stories we don't even know about. We didn't hear about those battles, but the editor is saying that they were done and they were fought valiantly and that Saul won. The place I want to zero in is verse 52, in which we learn one of the ways in which Saul was able to do just this. The text says, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Friends, I pray myself as a leader and us as a church, that we would fight for this description in our community of faith, that this would be true of us, that we as a young church, when we look back on this season years from now, would be able to say with 1 Samuel, there was hard fighting in our day, but anytime we saw a valiant man or a woman, we attached them to ourselves and God brought victory. The reason we want to fight for that reputation and that description is the same reason we said when we studied Jonathan's armor bearer earlier in the chapter, where we said that radical faith and radical friendship, that is part and parcel of the kingdom that God is building. We do this because this is what the kingdom looks like. It looks like being knit together as a community that serves him. It was striking to me to remember that one of the first things God ever tells a human being is this. It is not good for a man to be alone. God tells Adam that in the garden, and that sentiment, it echoes down the halls of redemption from Adam and Eve to Abraham and his offspring, to Saul and his Israel of attaching people to himself, even to exile when there was a remnant that still worshiped God, to the New Testament where Jesus brought disciples around himself, to the New Testament church where 120 gathered in his name, to us today where we meet together as God's people and for all eternity when we will worship as a community of people, it is not good for a man or a woman to be alone alone and so we won't be, and we shouldn't be. When you watch Saul turn around and grab a person and draw them to himself, he is doing what we were designed to do as human beings, and he's doing what we were designed to do as citizens of God's kingdom. That's what we do. I was talking to a friend of mine this past week, and we were just talking about the woes of moving one location to another, school and grad school and career, and the wear and tear that moving often has on our faith. You, you guys understand this. We always underestimate how showing up in a new location can really wear down our spirituality and we can waver in our commitment to God and following him because we're not surrounded by the community that we once were. And my friend asked what I think is a very insightful question. He said, I want to know, am I a Christian because I really believe this, or am I Christian because I've just been surrounded by good people? Isn't that a great question? I think all of us essentially want to know the answer to that. We all want to know, if I was stranded on a desert isle, would I still have these same commitments? Would I still say the Apostles' Creed with such gusto? If I was by myself in a secular city and I didn't have these people around me, would I still believe all these things? In other words, have I made this faith my own? Is it more personal than it is social? I think that's an insightful question, but I think it's a trick question. It's true that we do, as individuals, repent of our sin, and we trust in Jesus for our salvation. We're going to have new member interviews tonight. We want to hear a person say, I have done this, and I trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. We want to hear that from a person's mouth. But to ask, can that same person be a Christian, whether they're with people or not with people, is not a question that our Bible asks it's putting a test to ourselves that the Bible doesn't even put to us. I mean, the Bible understands that there are bizarre, extreme Patmos Island kind of situations where somebody is truly alone in their faith. But other than that, every single one of us is being knit together in a body, in a vine, in a temple that's being built, by built, built brick by brick into a temple of worship to God. There's no sense in asking about the other because that's not how we're designed to live as a human being and to a follower of God. To ask would I still be a Christian if I didn't have the church is kind of like, to stretch the analogy, asking would I still be a good husband if I didn't have a wife? I mean, am I I just doing these things around the house because another person is living there or because I really value the entity of husbandry? It's not a question that the Bible is asking us because it is constantly calling us to live arm in arm with another person. Now we actually have several members in our church who are part of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're either there now or they've been there formerly. We have several members in our church who are in Sex Addicts Anonymous. So both AA and SA, they're either there now or they've been there. I don't say that to embarrass anybody. I say that to embolden us to say there are people in our midst who are getting serious about sin and addiction, and that's a wonderful thing. Now, the more I, I talk with some of these men and women who are in both AA and SA, the more I understand that there's, if there's one place that these groups don't play games in, it's that we're going to do this as a community. That you're going to seek wholeness and sobriety as a community of people who are going to link together. Often that means a weekly face to face meeting with a group of people that's going to talk about addiction. Sometimes that even means a daily phone call. You're going to pick up the phone and text or call another person who is going to hold you accountable to sobriety. They don't play games about doing this on your own. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to show up to an AA meeting and to say, You know, honestly, I'm not interested in a sponsor because I want to discover if I'm interested in sobriety in its own right and not because somebody is calling me every single day. I want to know what it's like to show up at SA and say, do you guys stream this material? Because, you know, I don't have a lot of margin in my life to show up at these meetings, but if I could get access to the content online, I could kind of track with you and I could figure out what you guys are learning at the same time. You try to pull that junk in AA or SA and your sponsor is going to say to you what a sponsor said to a friend of mine, and that is, if you don't have time for a weekly meeting and a daily phone call, I don't have time to watch you die. This is a deadly serious thing that we're about and, and we must unite ourselves with all urgency. Now, when we hear something like that, we hear about SA and we hear about AA, that seems the more extreme material, right? These are people to the far left. These are people with the title addiction. They're enslaved to something. They have baggage. They have stories. They have something that's probably happened to them. Meanwhile, I kind of, time to time, think about myself as over here to the right, I'm I'm more of a plain vanilla sinner, right? I mean, the stuff I do is just so plain in comparison that we're really talking about two different groups of people. I, I think that from time to time. If you're thinking that right now, I would pose the question to you, who told you that you were at peace with the world? Who told you that we were living in a peacetime mentality in which we define ourselves in different ways and say, I don't need to take the measures that I see another brother or a sister taking. Who told you that we were at peace with the world? I know it wasn't the apostle Peter, because Peter, Satan asked of him if he could sift him like wheat, and Peter would later write to the church, the lion, the, the, Satan roars like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's after us, and he's after to devour us. I know it wasn't the writer to the Hebrews who said we were in a peacetime mentality because he said, I urge you to gather together and all the more as you see the day approaching. You have resisted sin, but you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. I know it wasn't the prophet Jeremiah who said we were at peace because he said, my fear for my people is that God is near their mouths, but he is far from their hearts. They don't understand to rent their hearts and not just their garments, as Joel said. And I know it wasn't Jesus who said that we were in a peacetime mentality because he says, I'm the good shepherd in John 10, but he says there is a thief who has come to steal and kill and destroy. And the first chance he gets, he will jump the sheep pen and slit the throat of a sheep and throw it over to his fellow robbers. You and I are at war. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. When we read that Saul was besought with hard fighting on every single side, we say that the same is true to us today. We are in a war. This is a window into Saul's fight with sin. Because Saul is doing militarily what we and all Israel want to do covenantally. He is drawing people to himself to pursue what God is calling him to do. Of all the things we've said about Saul and all the missteps that he's made, we said that he can have this theme in his life of ignorance. He never knows what's going on. He doesn't know what God is up to. He doesn't know what Samuel is up to. When there's this tumult in the camp in the Philistines, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know that Jonathan's missing. For the rest of the book, he doesn't know where David is and what he's up to. Ignorance just prevails in Saul's life. You know the one thing that Saul is not ignorant about in his life? that he is at war with the world. Saul understands very well that he is fighting a battle for the territory of Israel and ultimately for the territory of Israel's heart. He is at war. There's a scene that you're never going to see in Saul's life. You're never going to see Saul wandering through the countryside in Israel and coming on a strapping young man who is plowing a field and saying, man, it was great to get to meet you, but I better get back to Gibeah and see if there's any household chores that I can do. That's not going to happen. Saul cannot afford that. He is at war. He does not have the luxury of a coffee hour Christianity. When he sees a valiant man or a woman, he attaches them to himself because he cannot afford to leave somebody in the countryside when there are garrisons to be taken and there are prefects to be assassinated. You know one of the quickest ways to spot a Christian who has been lulled into a peacetime mentality? It's a Christian who does not attach another person to themselves. They can't imagine why they would need to do that, and so they don't do that. And meanwhile, this is one of the greatest gifts that God has given for our life and faith. One of the best ways we take our Christian life seriously is to attach ourselves to somebody else who takes our Christian life just as seriously as we do. Friends, when we find a valiant man or woman of faith, we draw them to ourselves, we attach ourselves to them because we are going to need each other in the world that Jesus wants. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you would shake us. I pray you would shake us out of a peacetime mentality, and I pray that you would lead us into the joy of friendship with one another. You've called us to attach people to ourselves, to be that person for another, and I pray that we would get deadly serious about community within this church. You can do that and we can understand the joys of what you will bring through that by the power of your son, Jesus. We ask in his name, amen.